I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill talk about the newly dropped America Competes Act, the ongoing semiconductor shortage, and Russia sanctions. All that and more on this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Hi, Bill. Hi, Scott. Hope you guys are having a good week so far. No shortage of news in Washington this week. Let's get started with a new package that dropped last night from the House, which is the America Competes Act. There's a lot of content for one big act, but it includes lots of trade measures, making it somewhat different than the Senate proposal. Uh, What's in the bill and where does it stand? Well, to begin with, just the section by section Discussion is 109 pages, which tells you the bill is going to be a lot more than that. And since it came out about six o'clock last night, I, for one, have not had a chance to go through the entire thing in detail. Maybe, maybe Scott has, but not a chance. Thanks. <laughs> looking at the trade section, there are several items of of that will be very controversial. A lot of the bill elsewhere has already passed the House. There's a lot of bills from the, that came out of the House Science and Technology Committee relating to the National Science Foundation and to NIST and to other areas of promoted innovation that have already passed the, uh, the House, which will probably not be controversial. The CHIPS Act is in there, uh, which I think probably will not be controversial. There's a lot of other things from other committees, some of which have already passed, some of which have not. The trade provisions are new. And um, let me comment on a couple, and then I'll yield to Scott, who will comment on some other ones. I think the two that will arouse the most controversy, because they haven't passed either body, is uh, the de minimis provision that we discussed last week that Congressman Blumenauer has gone ahead and put in. Just to refresh, the de minimis level is the level below which you don't have to do detailed customs reporting and below which you don't have to pay duties. And in 2015, Congress raised it from $200 to $800. Blumenauer now wants to eliminate it for selected countries, which are non-market economies that are also on the USTR's intellectual property watch list, which I believe is four countries. China, Vietnam, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. So it really is focused on China. There have already been complaints from the business community about how rolling this back will be a terrible idea. And I think this will be very controversial. It will keep lobbyists employed for the next several weeks. And I say several weeks because this this bill is a classic case of what often happens in the Congress, which is nothing happens for a long time and then everything happens suddenly. So this bill came out last uh, last night. Uh, I don't think it's going to committee. I think they'll go straight to the floor with it. The speaker has famously said she doesn't take bills to the floor that are not going to pass. So I think it's fair to assume that, that they have the votes for this in the House, um, although it has been a more partisan process in the House than it was in the Senate. The Senate bill passed with bipartisan support. 
This one, I think, will not have much bipartisan support. And this, the de minimis issue may be one reason uh, why. The other one that I'll flag, and then I'll stop talking and yield to Scott, is they have also put in the bill on outbound investment that uh, Senator Casey has tried to get into the Senate bill, tried and failed to get into the Senate bill last summer, and subsequently has tried to get into other bills in the Senate without success. This is a bill that would allow the, or would set up a committee like CFIUS, only it would be separate, that would provide for reviewing outbound U.S. investment, which would be a new thing. We historically don't control it. And it's a fairly sweeping bill because what it does is it says that the reviews will cover uh, outbound investments that relate to national critical capabilities. And those are systems and assets so vital to the United States that the inability to develop them would have a debilitating impact on national security or on crisis preparedness, which means PPE and pharmaceuticals and a whole bunch of other things. And what that means is transactions, and a transaction is a very broad term because it's not just an investment. It could be an export, which makes it redundant with export controls. Covered transactions are those that, by any U.S. business that shifts or relocates to a country of concern, which really means China, but it wouldn't be the only one, or transfers to a country of concern, any essential element involving one or more national critical capabilities, any transaction that could result in an unacceptable risk to a national critical capability is also covered as well as any transaction which is intended to evade the other criteria I just spelled out. That is really broad, and it gives the government very broad discretion to argue that individual transactions could constitute an unacceptable risk to a national critical capability. They don't use even here the words uh, security up front. You know, it has to have an impact on security, but it has to relate to a national critical capability a term yet to be defined. This is going to produce major lobbying. The idea was taken up in 2018. Congress decided not to go down this road in 2018. This bill would reverse that decision, and I think it's going to end up being very, very controversial. The U.S. Chamber uh, has opposed it strenuously in the past. It opposed it last summer when Senator Casey tried to move it forward, and I think they'll probably oppose it again. Scott? This is one of these uh, episodes where... uh I'm worried about the risk that uh, the Bill and I come off as uh, Statler and Waldorf, the uh, famous balcony hecklers from the uh, Muppet Show. Uh, and so, look, I think that bills raise the right concerns. First, I want to point out that the, this bill that passed the Senate, 60-something to 30-something, it does have a trade title, but not the, not the whole package here. And the, the elements that the House intends to add have very little sort of hearing record or very very little deliberation on the part of the Congress on why these are important or why that why the what we what we've recently done needs changing. And so this is my frustration more than anything else. It's it's a matter of you know for instance uh, if you want to uh, tighten the conditions for awarding GSP, well look we it's not like we haven't done this before. The, back in I think 1999. The U.S. established a textile agreement with Cambodia 
that was a pilot program. It was audited by the, I think, the International Labor Organization, but it was about raising labor standards and using preference programs to improve conditions. And it was it was terminated in 2005. It doesn't even appear on USTR's website anymore, so nobody seems to want to talk about it. So my first question is, so did that work? If not, why not? And how does that how does that apply to what we're doing now? So that's a, that's a smaller element. Uh, look, I think de minimis, as we pointed out in the show last week, there were reasons for raising de minimis, and a lot of it had to do with risk management by by the customs service. And I don't know of any evidentiary finding that this has helped or hurt. I just don't know. We've done this now six or seven years since since the higher uh, de minimis threshold was was implemented. I have no idea what we've learned, and and maybe we ought to do that before we change it. Just a suggestion. Uh, same now, the outbound investment screening is even more uh, of a stretch in terms of yes, we have a senator who has expressed some interest and effort in trying to make this happen. He's a lone voice. He hasn't gotten very far. And I think there's good reason for that. But it's not just uh, that there will be a furious lobbying effort. It's I'm not sure anybody's really established why this is a good idea, why this is necessary. From a security standpoint, you do have the export control regime. And uh, frankly, uh, we've maintained an open investment policy in the United States for a long time. It's quite beneficial to us. Nobody's talked about what other other economies might do in response to such a screening mechanism. But that seems to be to be pretty pretty serious. Given the, we, the size of our current account deficits, we actually need the money. If we start to condition U.S. investments abroad, we could expect similar action by by our investment partners. And I don't think that's good for the country. But nobody knows. In other words, where's the hearing? Where, where's the evidence that this is a this is a, a sensible and appropriate and important thing to do, that it's a problem that needs to be solved and can't be solved any other way? So looks like another round of Congress not deliberating. Uh, we're going to, you know, legislate first and ask questions later. Somewhat dangerous. If I can pick up on that, I, I think that's a good point, particularly on de minimis, which is I mean, Congressman Blumenauer, and I'm an admirer of Congressman Blumenauer, but he just floated this last week or the week before. I mean, de minimis is not a new idea, but the idea of providing exceptions to it for specific countries is is kind of a novel idea. And as Scott has said, the, the case for changing anything has, hasn't been made yet. There haven't been any hearings. So it may well be that the verdict on, on some of this stuff once they get to conference with the Senate, will be, let's spend a little more time thinking about this and deciding what the right thing to do is, and let's not just, you know, drop it into a, a giant bill and hope for the best. I'd also make two other points, if I could. Um, one of the things that uh, I forgot to mention before was there is also some trade law reform in here, which I think may actually be uh, be welcome. I need to look at the provisions more clearly, but they they kind of track recommendations that CSIS made in its Commission on Affirming American Leadership report that came out last year, where we felt that one of the problems with our unfair trade practice rules, which are dumping and subsidies, is that they tend to provide you know basically relief too late. The investigation takes a long time, and companies that have been harmed, uh, and they have to prove they're harmed before they can win, uh, even actually they have to have the proof before they file, because ITC is going to look at the past record on this. And so the relief is not always effective. 
and the Congress is trying to change that. They've included a bill that was first introduced by Senators Brown and Portman uh, in the Senate, and, and this now has been introduced in the House by uh, Representative Sewell from Alabama and a counterpart Republican, which would tackle, tackle at least one of the issues that we focused on, which was circumvention. And that is the issue that comes up with, with a lot of things, which is, you know, when you push on the balloon, um, it doesn't always pop. It just, you know, pushes out somewhere else. And what happens with circumvention is if you impose dumping duties on Chinese exports, what the Chinese do is they ship them to uh, Vietnam, for example. Somebody stamps made in Vietnam on the product, and then it's suddenly a Vietnamese product, and it's shipped here, and it doesn't pay any of those duties. That's called circumvention. It's also called customs fraud when, when all they've done is, is change, you know, change the label. But there are other ways to, to uh, circumvent that are not fraud, but effectively get around the duties. And this bill contains a number of measures that would make it easier to do two things. One, to broaden and accelerate the tools, uh, the process it has for dealing with cases of circumvention. And it also has a, a new approach for dealing with what might be called serial offenders, companies that dump and then uh, get caught and are paying duties and then do it again and again and again through slight changes in the product so that technically it's not covered by the old duties. There's provisions in the bill that would uh, allow commerce or give commerce new tools to tackle that. Now, those, are, I think, are potentially good things. However, they also have not had hearings that I'm aware of, and there will probably be resistance to them, I'm sure, from some business groups, perhaps, but probably not all of them, because there's a lot of businesses that have been victims of, of what I've just been talking about. The other comment I'd made is remind people that one of our good friends, Ed Gresser, who was on uh, Trade Guys podcast just a few weeks ago, has produced a paper that came out, I think, on Monday that uh, addresses the GSP issue. Ed is an old, longtime expert on GSP and has written about it frequently in the past. And this uh, uh, piece is a bit of a cautionary tale about the potential consequences of putting in too many criteria. Because what the House bill does is it adds, in order to be eligible, you know, it, it adds more criteria on uh, labor rights, on uh, environment, on gender, on anti-corruption, and a variety of things like that. And it gets to, you know, it, I think Ed raises the, the question of at what point do these things become so laden with criteria that they're no longer useful? And I've ranted about this in other contexts. You know, at, at one level, it's a fair point to say, our benefit, our rules. You know, if you want to be eligible for duty-free entry into the United States, we get to define the terms. Uh, and that's true. On the other hand, if you set up so many conditions for eligibility that nobody takes advantage of it, uh, you're not helping anybody. And the point of GSP was to promote economic development and growth in LDCs in, in developing countries. To do that, you've got to give them something to hang their hats on. Uh, and if you set up a program that has so many criteria that they, they cannot or will not meet, then you have not accomplished anything in the sense of what the program was intended to do. You're not promoting growth. You're not promoting development. You know, you're creating a program that is essentially DOA. So we'll see how this develops. The House played this game with Pakistan, 10 or so years ago, 
and developed a special program for Pakistan uh, that turned out to have so many criteria that it was not widely used. I would hate to see this, the general GSP program, go down the same route. In our typical situation here of, of slam-bang legislation, and I would have, would have thought at some point the House's disappointment with the failure of the voting rules bill and the uh, major uh, spending package, both having failed to make it to the president's desk, at some point they'd, they'd, they'd want to revisit their the practices here. <laughs> Whatever they're doing isn't working. Now this one is, the failure here is likely to happen behind closed doors because they're trying to get a bill into conference and get their provisions to, uh, to at least somewhat match up and be debated in a House-Senate conference, which tends to be less public self-immolation than the self-immolation practiced recently. We'll see what they do. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to make the decisions. But uh, it seems to me a stronger evidentiary record for any of the proposed changes would help rather than hurt. And, you know, look, if these are good ideas, you, you ought to be able to establish that they're good ideas. All right, let's turn now to the CHIPS Act. There are $52 billion allocated in the package we we're just discussing. Yesterday, the Department of Commerce published results from a survey it conducted of 150 companies. The results essentially said that the United States is facing an alarming chip shortage. So what would this $52 billion for semiconductors do? Would it essentially amount to a new U.S. industrial strategy for chips? Well, I think we already have the industrial strategy. This would put some money behind it, and I think important money, although you can see companies are responding anyway. Intel announced earlier this week, I think on Monday, a $20 billion investment, and Scott will be very happy in Ohio for, for chips. Samsung has announced, I think, a $13 billion investment, I believe, in Texas. TSMC has said they're going to do the same thing in either Texas or Arizona. So wheels are turning on on this. I think what the Commerce Department showed, frankly, is what everybody knew anyway uh, and has been saying for a year, which is uh, we got a chip shortage, number one, and the biggest shortage is in the older chips, the ones that go into automobiles and other commercial products, which in turn are leading to production issues on you know, the auto assembly line. And three, the other, the other thing we learned from, from yesterday's results is this isn't gonna get fixed right away. You know, building a $20 billion fab plant is going to take a while. And so there is what we knew. This is exactly what we knew last April and May when, when this story broke, which is there is no easy, immediate, short-term fix for these problems. We are putting into place, you know, all the tools we need to solve the problem. And the $52 billion is certainly, you know, the government putting its money where its mouth is, which is important, and is going to, I think, certainly jumpstart process. But the process was, was already underway. I view this as, as, I think, reinforcing the market direction that's already established uh, rather than trying to create demand that's not there. I think you're right, Bill. Look, this is the flow of private capital into this sector is very strong because of the fundamental characteristics of, pro of market demand. So this is happening already. And the, I think the CHIPS Act does d add uh, federal subsidies in a way that's where the decision-making has essentially already been, already taken place at the state and local level because CHIPS basically matches subsidies pro already provided or, or subsidies approved at the state and local level. So this, this actually simplifies and, uh, and streamlines process. I think that's important partly be, because one of the, the reasons I, that, that I think IT chips 
shouldn't be expected to do it all via private capital is the speed at which the industry churns. I mean, if you make a, a several billion dollar investment and you have a, a 10 year recovery time period, that math works for in, in, the, in private, but the cycle time in improved chips, the, the sort of the Moore's law effect of uh, faster and faster and, and therefore smaller chips, uh, the payouts are actually harder to achieve given the, level, the, the, the speed of, uh, of transformation in the industry. And so uh, this looks like the right thing to do and uh, I'm looking, looking forward to the, uh, the results, but uh, my, my conclusion on the Commerce Report is the same as Bill's and somewhat a blinding glimpse of, of the obvious that has been apparent for a while now. And uh, we're, gonna have this, we're gonna have this problem for a while. So I think we'll continue to talk about uh, silicon chip shortages for some time into the future. The mystery that I'm, I'm that frustrates me, it's too late to do anything about it now, is why it's taken the House so long to get to this point. I mean, the, the, the program was authorized in, you know, the previous year's defense bill, and this is about the money. The Senate passed the money in June, and it's taken the House six more months to do something that is, A, obvious, and everybody says they're for. And I think the answer is that there are other things in this bill uh, that are controversial. We just got done detailing some of them. But uh, it's, you know, this is, I think, prolonged the crisis. It would have been nice if we could have started spending this money a year ago and had some of these things underway. But here we are now, and I hope perhaps it will do the right thing. I've said in other contexts, this is not the legislative process that you read about in seventh grade when you read the How a Bill Becomes Law book. Uh, you know, this is the, the process of nothing happens for a very long time and then everything happens at once. And so what you've got, the House having diddled around for months and months and months on this, produced a bill last night, which I predict you know, will not go to committee, will probably go straight to the floor fairly quickly. The Speaker is famous for saying she doesn't take bills to the floor that aren't going to pass. So I think we can assume the votes are there for this. Uh, the issues that we've been talking about will come up in conference because the things we've been talking about are not in the Senate bill, uh, and there will be resistance to them. But I suspect that uh, the resistance will be, and the lobbying will be in the conference. Let's turn to another very newsy topic this week, which is sanctions against Russia. The administration has threatened the use of unprecedented sanctions, uh, including the use of the foreign direct product rule, which would deprive Russia of semiconductor technology. What is the foreign direct product rule and what implications does that hold for relations with Russia? In essence, the foreign direct product rule is an extraterritorial application of U.S. export control law, not the only one, but one that, that says that products that are made overseas, whether or not they contain any U.S. content, are subject to U.S. export controls if they are made with technology or equipment that originated in the U.S. So think immediately semiconductors uh, and think companies that in the U.S. that make not chips, but make the equipment that you use to make chips, the lithography equipment, the, the wafer cutting equipment, the equipment that you use to make semiconductors, which include uh, LAM Research and a number of other U.S. companies. And they're not the only ones, but they're the prominent ones. And the foreign direct product rule says, if you are a foreign company that uses that equipment to make your chips, even if your chips don't contain any U.S. content, they're subject to U.S. control. Now, put that in practical terms, what that really means for chips is 
TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, which makes high-end chips, and it's going to it's going to mean if if the United, if the U.S. government does this, what it will mean is that we will tell TSMC that they can't sell any chips to the Russians, or they can't sell particular chips to the Russians. It could be calibrated sanctions. That could be devastating because those chips go into a lot of things from low-end phones and appliances to very high-end, sophisticated stuff that, that may actually have military application. So, you know, the actual direct trade between the U.S. and Russia in those kinds of high-end items is not great, minimal. Actually, total trade is not great between U.S. and Russia, and it's mostly raw materials. But if we apply the foreign direct product rule broadly, what's going to get interrupted is a lot of uh, the flow of a lot of high-end technology uh, to Russia that they need. And I think it would have a significant impact on their economy if we took that step. A lot of people in the news lately have been likening this to the Trump administration policy regarding Huawei. Is this similar or is it sort of a departure from the Trump administration approach? On paper level, it's the same thing. I mean, the foreign direct product rule was promulgated during the Trump administration. And so it's, you know, at that level, it's the same thing. Whether there are differences in how it will be applied remains to be seen. And what we learned with Huawei is that, you know, reality is a little bit more complicated than it seems at first glance. Huawei was put on, by the Trump administration, was put on what's called the entities list, which is a list of, of entities, in this case a company, it could be an individual, but in this case a company, that the Commerce Department has determined it poses a you know, a security risk. And what it means is that if you're on the entities list, anything you want to export to that entity needs an export license. So the government has a much greater role in deciding what goes. There's been, I think, a common assumption, certainly in some parts of the media, that what that really means is that nothing's going to get exported to that entity. And that's wrong. What it means is you need a license. And in fact, uh, a substantial number of licenses to Huawei have been granted. The House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee uh, Republicans let some of this data out uh, a month or so ago. And I think the, the, the story is with respect to Huawei in specific. If you look at the license applications that have been made so far um, since they went on the entities list, of those that have been decided, yes or no, a majority have been approved. So, you know, being on the list uh, and being uh, does not automatically mean that you're going to be denied everything. You know, a lot of low-end items that don't matter from a security point of view have been approved. Whether additional Russian entities are put on the entities list and whether it's administered the same way, you know, that's a mystery. It just depends on, on how this all plays out. And whether there are Russian entities who would have the same organizational structure and be affected in the same way as a company like Huawei. And I think, you know, likewise on the FDPR, the foreign direct product rule, it's the same thing. What, what the United States has done with that rule is claim extraterritorial jurisdiction over somebody else's exports. That doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily tell that company you can't ship anything. What they're telling that company is you need U.S. permission to ship, and that permission might or might not be granted. So if the CHIPS Act or equivalent passes and uh, U.S. companies suddenly have this cash infusion to start producing more semiconductors, are you essentially saying that there's a way to design this export control 
regime in a way that would cause minimal pain for U.S. industry? That excludes the possibility of retaliation. And I don't think the industry sells that many chips, the U.S. industry sells that many chips directly to Russia. I mean, it, it may, but the Russians uh, might retaliate in, in other means by not buying products that contain chips, U.S. chips. I mean, the immediate victim would be the end product manufacturer, the downstream industry, but to the extent they're impacted upstream uh, parts and components manufacturers. Keep in mind, a chip is a, usually a part. It's a component. It's not... It can be an end product, uh, but it usually isn't. Uh, that could happen. Uh, I think the industry has been far more concerned about enhanced controls on shipments to China because China is a major customer uh, because they make so many things that include chips. They're a major downstream producer and a huge customer, and the U.S. industry has a great deal to lose in that relationship if controls on chips are, are too high. I think the danger of of loss in a Russian case is much less. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts. Certainly plenty to consider this week ahead of what's on deck for the upcoming month uh, here in Washington. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you all. Thanks. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.